So welcome. Today is March 6th, 2009. This is Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of MitoActions.org. I'm pleased to welcome today Jack Raycroft, who's going to help talk with us about a special needs planning, and that includes opportunities for parents of children with special needs as well as adults. Sometimes it's difficult to think about the future when you're just trying to live day-to-day with mitochondrial disease, and uh, I'm excited to have Jack and his compassionate perspective to help us think about some of those things that often we don't think about. I met Jack about a year ago at the Ladders Conference in the Boston area, which is a conference on autism, and was really impressed by his um, sensitivity to mitochondrial disease and the unique challenges that it presents in that no two people with mitochondrial disease necessarily look alike. And the symptoms can be challenging and the future is challenging. And I was really impressed by his compassionate perspective and also his knowledge and obvious dedication to helping families who have um, either a child with special needs or have some kind of situation in their own lives with a disability. So Jack comes to us, and Jack, I'll let you give a little bit more background about sure. what you do, but um, I just want to tell you thank you so much for taking your time to speak with us today. Pleasure. And appreciate it a lot. My pleasure, Chrissy. And such a nice introduction. I, I'm, I'm, you're so kind, and, and I appreciate it so much. I want to thank everybody that's on the line today, too, um, for taking the time to listen and, uh, and, and sort of inviting me into your uh, into your world here. I, I've only spoken like this on a uh, conference call a couple times. So what I what I do is I, I have a I have a photo of uh, Fenway Park in front of me as, as if I have an audience in front of me, and it it seems to help a little bit. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about who I am first. I am uh, the director of special needs planning at a financial firm called Bay State Financial Services. I'm also what's called a MET-DESK specialist. I received some training from MET, uh, MET employee, but the desk, uh, MET-DESK program, DESK is an acronym for uh, MetLife Division of Estate Planning for Special Kids. So what my practice is dedicated to is working with families who have a dependent or involvement with special needs and helping them plan for the future. And it's not just financial, it's also legal and social, I guess we'd call the three pillars of, of the of our focus uh, when we we talk to parent groups. And I speak about 40 times a year to different parent groups uh, around New England. Frankly, uh, my agency is quite large. There's about 200 people in the field who, when they meet families uh, who may have uh, these sort of challenges, that they can come to me uh, for support and advice. I speak to all the MAP schools around uh, New England, those are things like May Center, Cotting School, a League School, if you're familiar with that, um, SpedPAC, which are in Massachusetts, our special ed parent advisory councils, which exist in some shape or form pretty much in every state. Um, and, and, and we talk about this subject. Uh, I'm a parent of a child with special needs. Uh, I have three children, uh, the oldest with special needs, uh, where I do what I do, I, I you know I'm headquartered here in, in Massachusetts, but I do work throughout New England. Um, I just sort of came to this because uh, in the business that I'm in, I wanted to give it a little background. I wanted to give it a little substance and quality, and I thought oh, this is a good way to get back instead of just working with business owners and the usual. Um, gives me a lot of reward. Uh, so today we're going to talk about this, uh, how to plan for the future. Uh, there are some basic special needs of state planning obstacles, obstacles that people have to planning, and there's some best practices. Uh, there are, you know, as Chrissy said in her introduction, folks, uh, have a lot of difficulty in sort of dealing with the immediate pressures of life. You know, we often describe it as, oh, my gosh, you know, my child is at doctor's again, or the ambulance is in the driveway, or, you know, uh, 
figuratively, the front lawn is on fire. You know, what am I going to do? I'm just dealing with these things, and they never seem to stop. How do I have time to think about the future? Well, uh, I think what you need to do is, is realize that they're not necessarily conflicting. And yes, there is so much time in the day, but if you can look at dealing with the future, it, it may give you some peace of mind and help you to be stronger, uh, you know, on the day-to-day. It's also a huge subject, you know. Uh, one of my challenges today is to speak just for 15 or 20 minutes on this when I usually speak for an hour and a half. Um, and although it's big, though, I don't want to imply that it should be overwhelming. You know, the analogy I always use is how do you how do you eat an elephant? Well, the answer is, is, is one bite at a time and, and we just sort of move, move through it. Um, and, and take it one step or one bite at a time. Uh, and concerns and anxieties people have about the future, you know, what is going to happen in my world? Uh, I'm gone. You know, I, I have so much under control. I, I'm managing so many things. I'm coordinating so many things. It, how do I deal with the future? Well, the first thing you need to do is get educated. You, you need to find out you know, at least the basics about what you could do. And we'll talk about that today. And then another thing which is also very good is to take some sort of action. And we'll talk about some things that you can do that, you know, you can start as soon as we're done with this call here um, on your own. Uh, so this sort of free-form anxiety is really debilitating. And a little education, some action can relieve that without a doubt. Um, Again, some basic planning best practices. Seek benefits if eligible for those benefits. And this is where we come into one of the unique situations uh, that presents itself with those suffering with mitochondrial disease. And, and Chrissy is right. I, I, I have known about mitochondrial disease for most of my career here, having met the people uh, who are the, the other the other side of what Christy does, I, I don't know the organization, Christy, the other, I know sort of the chapter system that right, exists you know, out yeah. there. Mm -hmm. I met some of those folks that I met you, and so much that a planner tries to do is, is you know, manage the unpredictable and help people, you know, put plans in place that are going to respond best to the one thing that we know for sure, which is that change is coming down the road. Um, it just doesn't seem to be anything predictable about mitochondrial disease. And that is so challenging. Um, so seek benefits is eligible. You know, there are a lot of adults that have, that have mitochondrial disease and at the same time have children. So you're looking to try to get on disability. Um, I'll come back to that, but that's what I'm talking about there. Um, the other, it sounds sort of similar, but protect your eligibility for benefits. This is more traditionally with children, and this refers to, uh, you know, uh, benefits such as SSI and Medicaid, also known as Mass Health. And there are certain restrictions. Uh, you know, you're only allowed to receive these benefits under certain strict uh, rules. And so you have to be aware of those. And if they are eligible for them and you want them to have them, you need to protect that eligibility in your planning. Um, the other is to make sure that systems, financial, legal, and social, are set up to fall into place when you are no longer here to do the work that you usually do along those lines or dependent. So I'm going to be sort of jumping in and out. And when Christy and I, uh, in, in different sort of uh, family types, if you will, when Christy and I first talked about this, uh, we talked about that different types of family types that we have within the mitochondrial disease community. You know, the single adult patient, the family with one child with mitochondrial disease, the family with multiple people affected within it. And another thing I thought of after talking to her is, is what I see is a, a prevalence of you know, comorbidity or, or mitochondrial disease plus autism or mitochondrial disease with this. And it, it just makes things more complicated and, 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 and more difficult. And so some of the things I'm going to talk about apply to some situations, some apply to others, and I'm just going to try to get as much of this out as possible, as, as Chrissy said, try to unload as much information yep. as possible. 
That's great. You're doing a great job. And, Jack, I'm going to ask you a favor. Just because there may be people who are in Canada or the U.K. and definitely outside of Massachusetts. So okay. if there's something that um, deserves defining in a broader sense, feel free to go ahead and do that. So and, and feel free to jump in and say, that's definitely something you need to expand on, Jack. Okay, great. Um, just interrupt me and move me along, too. Um, yeah, there is, just to, to, to echo what Chrissy was saying, a lot of the work I do is in Massachusetts, probably most of it. Um, I also do work in Rhode Island, in Hampshire, Vermont, um, in New England. I, part of an organization that the Met Desk organization that I talked to you about, Met, Met is, you know, for whatever you think about the financial industry and what's going on in the insurance industry, the people at MetLife uh, do a great thing. They have this division called MetDesk, and they have people there. They have resources there. They're training uh, people like myself all over the United States. Uh, there's a special group of people, again, with special training that, that do what I do. Some do it, you know, as a larger part of their practice. Others do just a small part. But it's out there, and MetLife is very committed to it. And there's just a, not, a, not a lot of people doing it other than uh, the effort that MetLife has put forward. And so it is a it is a very good thing, and we're trying to get mitochondrial disease more on. I'm trying to, with Chrissy, get that more on the map with that desk, which would which would would make a difference. But back to my regionality, um, laws change from state to state, and I know nothing, really, frankly, about the laws in in Canada or Great Britain. But some of the basic, fundamental, good planning ideas will apply, and and I think you'll you'll understand those when I when I mention them. But specific laws about benefits really do change from state to state, and you need to you know the learning there is work with people who have experience in this, and and ask for referrals from others who have worked with people and they were happy. Um, the section here that I want to talk about is is, is smart planning, and that was something that. Christy gave me a term, and I think it's good. One thing that you can do as soon as we hang up the phone here is you can begin what I call, and many others call, your letter of intent. Call it a memorandum of intent. Uh, some people have said, Jack, it's like, it's like the mother of all babysitting notes. It's the note you leave behind that those are going to follow you. It's the note that you start writing as soon as we hang up that tells the world or anyone who you've asked to Step into your shoes when you're gone, or no longer able to participate in the care of your loved one, what it is you want for them. You want to describe everything about them, and you want to describe their world, their hopes and dreams, your hopes and dreams for them. It could be names and addresses and phone numbers of doctors, therapists, the doctor you never want them to go to again, the doctors that you love, the pharmacist, the attorney, the financial guy, the relatives, all their phone numbers, um, what makes your child happy or sad. And I'm not ignoring the adults in this picture at all because you can you you can do this for everyone in your family, you know. Um, it, it, it's a very powerful thing. And although no one will ever be able to replace you and no one will ever know your loved one like you do, this is the next best thing. It is vitally important. You don't want to leave it to chance. So, Jack, I'm going to jump in here for a second yes. because I think the point also that you're making for the adults is a good one because I have um, a member of MitoAction who's been very involved who has shared with me her story. And because she had taken the time when she was first diagnosed with mitochondrial disease to really do that mother of all documents and to and to make sure that she had things like a living will, but she had specifically written down what her wishes were and what she and what she wanted and who her preferred treatment facility was and so forth. Mm-hmm. And she suffered a stroke-like episode and basically was unable to communicate for six months. Um, her family would not have been able to execute on her wishes without mm-hmm. that document, not just legally, but also because her spouse was so immobilized by the crisis 
Yep. And he wasn't doing a good job being able to see clearly on what to do because he was in shock himself. Yeah. And because it was in writing, it made it much easier for her brothers and sisters and other family to be supportive. I'm happy to say that that patient, which is so typical of mitochondrial disease, is doing great today, and she came yeah. out of it. And she's, you know, but thank goodness that she had those things, and she shares her story because she says it's so important that you take the time um, to describe what you want for yourself and your children. Um, because you just don't know what what might happen, and you can't you can't guarantee that the person who you trust is going to understand what you want is going to be able to communicate what you want, um, as in her case. So. so so much of what I talk about, you know, can be boiled down to you know we just don't know, and so we need to do some things uh, that are going to help us manage our risk in life. Um, and I guess that's sort of a cold and calculating response to things, but um, it's just good. It's good for you. It's good for the family. You should do these things. Um, these letters of intent are so powerful. They, and you mentioned uh, living will. That's a legal document. Um, what I'm talking about is, is a non-binding document, uh, something that, you know, you want to set aside. It has no, um, no authority in the courts or anything, but has been used in the course as a supporting document, something, you know, there's a fight over with a trustee and a guardian uh, over management of, of, of monies or a person, um, and that has been brought to bear. Um, we'll talk about some legal documents in a minute that are that are key, but uh, also this, this letter of intent can use as a screening tool uh, for helping you select guardians. You know, they ask them to read this. This is our vision. Um, you know, if, if we were to go and you were to agree to be guardian and to step into such a position, um, you know, this is really what we want to happen. Um, and this is who uh, who we're talking about. This is the person behind um, this paper here, um, this letter. Uh, so a, a powerful thing. And we, we recommend that you do this, you know, revisit it regularly. You know, call it every year. Pick a date. Sit down with your your significant other and, and look at this document because you've grown, they've grown, everybody involved in that letter has grown and changed and you, you need to add that and keep, you know, versions on your computer. And, and I have templates for this. So, Christy, I'm more than happy to get it to you, get it out to the people uh, that are interested or they can come directly to me for it. I, either way. Great. Um, and uh, I talked a little bit before about uh, – Disability insurance, you know, FSDI, um, they call it. If you're disabled, if you believe you're disabled and you're not receiving this, apply for it. And I'll tell you what, you will be denied. Almost always, they almost always deny everybody the first time. So apply again. And if it's not working and you feel you deserve it and you can afford it, hire a disability attorney. Because it could be a, you know, a lifetime of benefit which would be worth, you know, borrowing the $1,000 or whatever it would be to get the attorney to do this for you. And, uh, you know, and you can usually meet with these attorneys at no cost. Um, I'm also a great resource for attorneys who know what they're doing, um, who work in these areas, uh, whether it's estate planning or disability law. Um, and they will be able to tell you in, in a, you know, usually a complimentary consultation whether you have a case. So uh, you want to think about that. Other smart planning ideas are some legal documents. Uh, the first one is so important. Create a will. You want to create a will. And if there's two of you, it's two wills. A will for the husband and a will for the wife. It's not one will for two people. Some people think that. That's not the case at all. And a will is the document where you, this is important, appoint a guardian. Still has to go through the court. This is where you say, this is who I want to be guardian of my child. And if they're not able to serve or unable or unwilling, I want this person next in line to be the guardian. All right, it's very important. Uh, other important uh, legal documents are what's might have called a, uh, a, a living will that Chrissy mentioned before, and that's really your, your final wishes. You know, if you were on, uh, someone was on uh, in a coma or, you know, there was a, the Shavo case in Florida years ago that created such a protest. The reason that protest even evolved um, between the right to live and the right to die was 
was that there was no living will. There was no direction for the family uh, from the person who was ill, and they couldn't communicate. Uh, another important uh, document is called Durable Power of Attorney, uh, and this is where you know, the husband and wife would again each have one of these. And it would be if one is incapacitated, but their signature or, uh, you know, agreement on something is required to make, to take action. Maybe it's to, you know, get a, a mortgage on the home that they jointly own. Well, a durable power of attorney on the wife would give the husband the privilege to sign on their behalf um, and vice versa. And uh, this could be uh, very important. Uh, so those are some, some key documents. Uh, again, back to protecting eligibility for government benefits, SSI and Medicaid. Uh, these are the key ones. If, uh, in fact, you are eligible for those benefits, uh, eligibility uh, being you are disabled, uh, if you're a child, you're eligible for it, but they consider your parents' income. So they're looking at things like how much income do you have and how much assets do you have. Uh, those are two separate things. Um, that determine whether or not you receive SSI. And what is SSI? Supplemental Security Income. A lot of you out there may know what this is, but it's actually sort of like a, a, a stipend for living. Um, it, it is a check based on living in situations that may be anywhere from you know, $400 to $700, and it, and it changes from state to state and year to year. Um, and the basic rules are you cannot have more than $2,000 of assets in your name, and your earnings uh, cannot exceed, I think, currently it's around $1,000 a month. If you exceed either of those, you're not eligible. As a child under 18, if your parents exceed those, your child is not eligible. So pretty strict, uh, almost, you know, ridiculous. And yet people ask, why are those numbers so difficult to be low? Uh, well, the government in its wisdom, you know, doesn't want to be giving anything away for free. It wants people to be defined clearly as, as uh, in poverty. Uh, so how do you protect the eligibility? Well, you need to keep the assets of the individual below that amount uh, and their income below that amount. As you can imagine, then that becomes a problem. We want our children and we want people to be full functioning, living, participating individuals, okay? We want them out there earning and living and being in society. Yes, but this child still needs help. So what am I doing? How do I get that help and, and, and do that? That is a challenge. Um, most people I know would almost sit back and say, you know, forget the benefits. It's more important for my child to live a full and functioning life and make his go at it or her go at it. That's a personal decision. If you are eligible for SSI, you are automatically eligible for Medicaid. Well, Medicaid is a million-dollar benefit. Uh, that can be a lifetime of medical care insurance coverage. I don't cover everything, but covers an awful lot. Um, it's very important. Uh, there's, there's usually a lot of questions around this, so um, we're just going to move on. It will be available for questions at the end. Um, another sort of smart planning is fund the future. Uh, for the dependents with special needs and their caregivers, which is a lot of times a piece that people forget. Um, a, you know, how do you do that? You know, well, people have assets in their life. They may have a, own a home or have equity in a home. They may have life insurance. They may have some sort of retirement plan. Um, you need to make sure that those assets are going to be transferred at your passing in the manner that supports your wishes. Uh, sort of broad and vague, but if you have a child with special needs, you pass away, you want to make sure that they have some assets available to them to support themselves the rest of their lives. And 
here's the challenge, you know, with mitochondrial disease, sometimes we don't know how long people are going to live. Or if we're talking about, you know, a parent with mitochondrial disease, how does this even apply? Um, it, it's difficult. And, and on case by case, I can answer these questions. Uh, in my world of planning, of all the plans I've done with folks in, in a, in a, that are underway, they have planned, at least in some way, shape, or form, to supplement the future funding with life insurance. And, you know, I would tell people, tell me, uh, yes, life insurance. That is, that is the easiest way to do it. Now, it doesn't work for everybody. You may not be insurable. So it may be real estate. Or you may not own a home. Or you, the value of your real estate has dropped. Uh, your investments have brought. You look at what you have, but often life insurance is a tool that you can count on. We're looking for things that we can predict. We don't can't predict the value of real estate. We can't predict the value of investments. But life insurance, if you have this much life insurance, you pay the premium, half the way, that amount we know is going to be there. All right, which leads me to the next point. Where is it going to go? Well, this gets back to protecting eligibility for benefits. And as you can see, all this stuff is very systemic or all connected. Um, we want to make sure that the life insurance goes to somewhere to a trust. We call them special needs trusts. Let's just call them trusts for now. Now it's time to get into a whole discussion of different types of trusts. But the trust, having money in the trust, will make it separate from being in the name of the child. So therefore, when the government is handing out benefits and looking at eligibility, they will say, oh, I see the child has a trust set up for their benefit with X number of dollars in it, certainly more than 2000 That's fine as long as it isn't in the child's name. That trust is managed by a trustee for the child's benefit, but the child never receives the money. And I, and I say child, but this can be an adult. This can be uh, anyone, and that's how trusts work. They separate it from the individual. They create another bucket. Uh, another smart planning tool is proper setting up proper beneficiaries. There are different kind of assets out there. There are individually owned assets. There are jointly owned assets, like your home, perhaps, if you have one. And then there are contract assets, which are things like retirement accounts, uh, annuities, life insurance where you have a contract with another company that's going to pay, that has a beneficiary associated with it. You want to make sure that your child or anyone who's receiving benefits, and those benefits are tied to limits of assets and income, don't receive that life insurance or that annuity or that retirement account directly because it'll kick them off benefits. So you make the trust the beneficiary. Right? One of the things people say, well, oh, I have a child with mitochondria, but I have two others that are typical. I'll just have them take care of it. We'll leave everything to them. Well, that's not ideal. We, don't, we try to discourage that as much as possible because that's what we call morally obligated gifting. And it's putting a lot of pressure on an individual to take responsibility when, although you know that they love their sibling, you just don't know what's going to happen down the road. You don't know if they may get married and divorce and that money get attached in a divorce or they have a business, they're sued, that money gets attached. It's, there are numerous things that could happen, and it's, it's not good planning. Um, another thing, you need to coordinate along this line, coordinate with family members. Once you, once you start to do anything, you know, as it, as it sort of progresses and, you know, if in fact you go down this road, let other people in your family, other people in your world, know what you've done. Heaven forbid that you have a relative across the country or the state that is good intentioned and loving as can be and leaves money directly to someone who's trying to protect their eligibility for benefits. It'll throw them off benefits. They need to know that you've done some work and who they should talk to if they wish to leave a gift, uh, either you know, while they're alive or after they pass away. Um, the last couple of points here, and I'm probably running way over time, is make sure that you 
you integrate your legal, financial, and social planning. And I didn't really talk about social planning, so I'm not going to avoid that. There's, there's organizations out there that, that help set up social networks, or you can do it yourself. Develop a team of people that your child knows and loves, and he does this in the summer, he does this in the winter, or we go here, we go there. If you're not around, how can those things continue to happen? Ask these people if they will allow these things to continue to happen, if they can count on him going fishing every summer with their uncle, if they can, you know, have this person who, you know, plays sports with them come by every summer Saturday and do these sort of things and build a social network. And there are actually organizations that, you know, will help you and charge you to do these sort of things. But, you know, a lot can be done on your own. Um, so integrate these things because uh, they have to be integrated, the, especially the legal and the financial need to talk to each other. Um, and lastly, work with people who do this for a living because there's a lot of well-intentioned people in my industry, in the legal industry, that will raise their hand and say, I'd be glad to help you. Uh, let me get back to you. I've got to get on the Internet and find out how this works. Um, any savings would not be worth it. Uh, there, there are some very good people doing this, and uh, you need to search them out. Right. Christy, that's, that is the speed version um, of everything I know. And I, it is a lot, and I'm sure a lot of people are either, you know, uh, either rolling back in their heads or they, they, they've heard this and they, they've heard it in a, in a longer version. Um, Not necessarily. So I think it's great to, to do this kind of overview. So why don't I unmute the lines and we'll allow some questions and some additional discussion. Yeah, it was good practice for me, too. I've never had to do with that. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here we go. Okay, so everybody, you're unmuted. So we'll just take turns here. If you have a question, just speak up, and then um, we'll let everybody have a turn. When you ask your question, they'll just tell us who you are and where you're calling from as well. Okay, so we'll take the first question. Who would like to ask the first question of Jack? Hi, does somebody have a question? I guess I have a question. This is Marcy Weil. I'm a physician of a patient who has Pearson syndrome. And um, and I guess you said multiple times that you would be available to answer questions. So I'm wondering how can the mother of my patient reach you if she needs to ask you questions? So I'm going to pass on the information you gave to her. I thought it was really interesting for people in general, much less people with special needs children. So... Um, I'm going to pass on the information. How could she get in touch with you? Well, Christy, I can give out my phone number. Is that appropriate? Of course. And actually, Jack, once we uh, post a summary, I'll put um, your phone number, your email, whatever else, whatever other documents we have, too. But please go ahead if you're comfortable with that. Yeah, if anyone wishes to call me, uh, I can be reached at area code uh, 781-876. Four one two five. That's in the Greater Boston area. Great, thank you. And um, yeah, I'm more than happy to talk to anyone by phone. Um, you know, we make a habit of doing complimentary consultations where we will meet with families and talk about the situation because what you got today was incredibly general um, and, and hurried, and it, it's not on a case by case basis. And this this work is always done on a case by case basis. There are no cookie cutter. Uh, solutions at all, um, and we also are happy to make referrals to other parts of the country and to other uh, to attorneys that may help you in this part of the country and elsewhere. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Jack. Um, anybody who would also like to ask a question? Yeah, this is Bob Brief. Hi, Bob. Hi, Jack. Um, I, this is kind of a vague thing that's in my head. I'm an adult with mitochondrial disease, which is progressing, and I'm concerned about the future in regard to medical care that, you know, is going to 
be more and more involved and more expensive, then there is no possibility of getting long-term care insurance at this point. And uh, are there any ideas that you have in this sense? I mean, other than just saying, well, you have to put aside certain assets and, you know, monies for that that problem and are there any you know ideas that you might have about that yeah um, it, it's a difficult situation that you have it's very difficult are you married yes in, in children no children okay so you have a wife that's healthy um, pretty much yes well she you know she's <laughs> you're gonna be leaning on her and she probably knows that already. Ready. Um, long-term care insurance is probably not available. Right. Um, you know, they're concerned with people. They're, it's different than, you know, like life insurance underwriters are concerned with people that, that may die. Long-term care insurance people are concerned with people that are going to need a lot of care. Um, you know, and so what you're saying is that, you you know, you're looking at your care down the road. So that, that would be difficult. Um, you know, being on disability, do you receive disability now? Yes, I do. Okay, well, that's key. Don't lose that. Um, uh, is there any reasons why I might lose it? I, I don't think so. I mean, you only if you became, you know, able to earn so much money in, in work. Um, I don't really know your specific situation on the disability. You're receiving SSI, SSCI? Yes. Okay. Um, so you're receiving it from the government. That's good. Yeah. Stay, stay that course. Um, I would, you know, frankly, I would be, I would be, I would be saving money um, if I could. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know of any sort of tricks here or best practices. They're probably not. It's just, it, it's difficult. It's, at some point, you know, you, you, you should receive, be able to receive, you know, Medicaid. In, or, or Medicare, um, and, and receive some support through the government. I'm, uh, I'm on Medicare now. Okay. How old are you? 64. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you're going to take advantage of that, but like I say, that doesn't, really doesn't pay for everything, um, or even close. No, I'm, in, in the case of, you know, needing more intensive care, which, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but that's a possibility. Um, Like you say, saving, putting aside monies for for this purpose is probably the only logical thing that can be done. Yes, it's probably the most logical thing that can be done. We we all know that the outrageous cost of, of care um, so it, it, it almost seems like, you know, you're, you're pushing the big rock up the mountain um, in, in that sort of a situation. Um, this is a big subject, and I'm not afraid to say that I go to others when I need additional expertise on something. And, you know, if you wish to call me offline here um, and I can get your information, I'll see what else I can find out. For you. Okay. More than happy to do that. Thank you. Okay. So you've got my phone number. Give me a call. The area code 781, you said? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I have that. Where are you located? New York City. Okay. Give me a call. We'll talk. Okay. Thank you very much. My pleasure. For an adult who's saving, are there the same caveats of having uh, an account in your name with those kinds of assets that there are for children who should not have money in their name? Yes, it is adult. It, 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 um, it's when you're 18 and over that they're looking at that, uh, that they're looking at your assets. Um, so in this case, is it important, for example, as what Bob was saying, for the savings account to be in his wife's name instead of his If we're talking about SSI and Medicaid and and but not SSDI. SSDI is tied to uh, what he what he put into the Social Security uh, program through working for years in the past, or if he was disabled as a child, uh, what his parents put in. 
so it's a little different. It, it's um, a different type of benefit. So he doesn't have to worry about maintaining his, his disability uh, due to income or assets. Well, and if, if I became unable in some way, I think this is what Christy is suggesting, to manage my own care and, and assets, should that should that savings account be protected in some way? Is that? Uh, yeah, well, you certainly could do that. You could put, you could make the account in your wife's name, mm-hmm. um, and a, you know uh, the savings could be in their name so that it couldn't be. And I have to say upfront because this is just my business of compliance. I'm not an attorney. I'm not a tax planner. Um, so by you know I can't talk about the law, but. You know, if it's not in your name, it's not your account. It's individually owned by your wife. Uh, whether or not, you know, they can reach out to your spouse and take money from her if you owe it for medical care, I'm not sure. But that would be the first line of defense. Yeah. And in her name. Thank you. I, there was someone else who was just trying to jump in with a question. I'll go ahead and send it to yeah. you. Uh-huh. Ellen in Massachusetts. I have uh, some questions pertaining to uh, adults. Um, so you had mentioned the limitations for SSI. So if, if you were applying for the SSDI, mm-hmm. are there no limitations regarding assets? Uh, no. No. So the, the limitations are that you you put into the Social Security system. You, you know, worked for 10 years or 40 quarters, right. as they call it. And, it. and if you've done that, you're eligible for some sort of uh, Social Security retirement or Social Security disability prior to that. Right. And what about income? No. Like, but you, well, you have to be unable to work. Right. But are you able, like, what if what if you um, are able to work, you know, is there any kind of part-time work possibility? Well, um, this is where you want to check with an attorney on that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and is there also, right, if I have them with me at my desk here, but there's, there's a, you know, there's some really basic brochures that come out of um, the Social Security Department that go into disability. One is called disability benefits, um, and they're free brochures. You can go online to SSA, which is Social Security Administration, .gov, and look up disability. You know, there's a whole section, click here for brochures. And they break them down to every subject. And, and there's one on disability benefits available to adults, disability benefits for children. Now, what is SSI? What is SSDI? Right, my understanding is that, that you can that you can work part-time. It's, it's pretty restricted in terms of what you can earn. But, um, you know, I'm also, you know there's, my understanding is, for example, with Medicare, that you're not eligible to get that for two years after you've gotten the disability which means that you have to continue paying quite a bit if you're trying to pay for health insurance. Um, so I'm just you know, right. wondering, you know, if, if you're also shooting yourself in the foot if you're trying to work a few hours to make some money to pay for your health insurance, but then you end up getting denied because, you know, you're showing that you can work. Well, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you said, yeah, you know, it's very you can work, but it's very restricted of what you can earn. It's certainly, you know, um, I didn't tell you, but you could, you know, earn money under the table. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I know this is anybody could be listening here, <laughs> but you know, I mean, the, the the natural conclusion is, you know, if I'm disabled, I'm not able to work. So if I'm not able to work, I'm not able to earn money. So if I'm earning money, I'm not disabled. Right. So and, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot if you're making any income at all. They're using, you know, uh, SSA, the Social Security Administration, is using that kind of logic. Mm-hmm. So you're going to battle that. Right. And is that correct? You have to apply for these benefits. They don't want to just give them to you. Mm-hmm. Like I said, if you apply, you will, you know, almost everyone, it seems, gets declined or rejected upon application. Um, and you have to apply again, and, you know, my messages don't give up. Um, How long does it typically take? To get approved? Well, well I'm saying it's usually, you know, it, it depends on the, the, the clarity of the case you make, um, the strength of the case. Um, I think there is sort of a, a weak spot over there about understanding what the heck mitochondrial disease is. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's, you know, one of the challenges that people with mitochondrial disease 
face all the time. I, I guess I'm preaching to the choir here, you know. I mean, every time I look around, they, you know, someone's saying, Mito what? You know, they don't get it. Um, it's just, you, you, you don't sound like you're sick, you know. Um, don't look sick, you know. Um, but they, they don't get it. So you, you, the case has to be made, and uh, disability, disability, uh, the Social Security Administration needs to just catch up. And and, uh, I, I can't make them do that. Are there certain things that people can do to make a stronger case or make it clear? Yeah, they can hire, people? unfortunately, they can hire a disability attorney. Mm -hmm. That's the best way to do it. Someone, usually someone who's worked on the inside. Because you know who reviews all these applications are attorneys. Uh -huh. So the only people that can understand attorneys are attorneys. Mm -hmm. I see. I, How much uh, along this, this note, and, and please, I know we're focused a lot on this, but I think it's an area that is challenging for um, the whole community, for children and adults, because of the ambiguity that... You're right, the mitochondrial disease diagnosis brings. It's not as clear-cut, and people don't understand yet what that means when they get those papers across their desk. Um, how much do you feel like the doctors are um, involved and necessary in order to really help the patients make their case for uh, benefits like disability? Um, I know that really just having the uh, disability attorney do do the work the right way. Well, um, I, I, I have the luxury of having had a you know my father who's still alive was a was a doctor, um, and I have some friends that have tried this process. One who currently it's not mitochondrial disease, but a friend of mine who has uh, uh, heavy metal poisoning, uh, which is another one of those things like well you look okay, but he has a brain bleed, and it, he has reams and reams of uh, of uh, medical information. The doctors do not want to, nor will they, really get involved in this. Um, they're not really interested in my experience. And you may find one, you know, exception to the rule, or many more than one exception to the rule. But they, they don't want to get involved in petitioning the government for your, you know, your your disability application. They don't want to. Uh, they will supply you with the work they've done the records that they've generated um, and, you know, provide those to you or to your attorney, um, and you take it from there. That's my experience. Not good news. Okay. That's helpful, though, because I think that often um, people have a fragmented medical system with mitochondrial disease where mm -hmm. – the doctor who makes the diagnosis is not necessarily the doctor at the community level who would be filling out paperwork. Yeah, so much of this falls back on onto us, you know, onto the patient. Um, as you talked about that fragmented history, you know, you have to know just just like in in uh, special ed law, you know, when you're making a case that the school systems aren't providing for your child the way they need to. You, know, you, you you need to establish things along the line as sort of a narrative, a historical pattern, and you need to sort of take a look at your medical record and sort of do the same thing. Make sure that it makes its case, that it's not full of holes. And, you know, talk to your, this is where your doctor can help, perhaps, and they can write maybe a letter to be entered into your file that explains the big picture. If you could get someone to do that, a physician to do that, I would think that would be incredibly helpful. But they're not going to be the interface between you and the government. And and I'll speak up here, too. I have helped patients um, with letters to insurance and um, in these cases. when If you're finding it difficult to describe why it's important that uh, mitochondrial disease be considered a diagnosis, that makes you eligible, um, I can sometimes help with some of the language for that, talking about the unpredictability of the disease and the symptoms and, um, you know, how it is variable and progressive and so forth. So I can, sometimes I can help with that. So folks can, including you, Jack, can come to me for a resource in that way also. Thank you. Um, so, Jack, can you hold on and we can have a couple more questions? Oh, sure. Anybody okay. out there, fine. 
Great. So, um, anybody else have a question? I actually have a question. Um, Go ahead. <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> this is Ron Tai. Um, I'm north of Boston. Um, I don't know if it's something you can answer or not, Jack, but um, um, I actually own a practice testing people's hearing. Mm -hmm. um, hard of hearing. I'm sorry? I have my own disability. I'm hard of hearing. Oh. I wear behind-the-ear hearing aids. Okay. Well, I won't get into that yet. <laughs> um, unfortunately, um, due to the way things are, my practice is probably going to either close or be sold soon um, because I don't have the energy anymore to, to keep it going. Mm -hmm. um, so if I'm lucky enough to actually sell the practice, obviously there are going to be some assets that, that are involved at that point. Um, and I know about three years ago, you know, I was originally granted disability through my own disability insurance company, um, and then they took it away because, you know, I hadn't missed enough days in a row, <clears throat> although it's now been... I'm sorry, why did they take it away from you? They said I hadn't missed, I hadn't missed enough days in a row, but if I'm not at my practice, my practice wouldn't be here. Yeah. Um, Although over the three and a half years, I've actually missed 447 days. <laughs> um, but um, my question, though, is if I'm lucky enough to actually sell the practice and there are, you know, you know money that comes in from that, um, what do I need to do with that then if I am trying to apply for disability again or through the government agencies, et cetera? Yeah. Um. I, w I would say I would need to know more information, but there are things you could do. You would you would definitely want to uh, because you'd be looking at that as probably your your primary assets, uh, other than a home for retirement and so forth as well. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to be very careful with that. I, I I'm not comfortable with just giving you advice over the phone. I, I would ask you to call me and okay. give me some more information. But I'm more than happy to talk to you. There are ways that you – there are things that come to mind, but uh, as far as, you know, allowing you to continue to receive benefits if you're receiving benefits and have this money in a certain – set up in a certain way so that you can receive it over the long term as income and things like that. But if you don't mind giving me a call, and okay. I'll, I'll talk with you later. You have my number, right? I do. Thank okay. you very much. My pleasure. Great. So let's have one more question, and then we're going to wrap up and thank uh, Jack for his time. And and I will, Jack, uh, put together a summary, and, and when you have any supplemental documents or things that you think are helpful. Well, send that letter of intent. Everybody could benefit from uh, pulling that down off your site and um, getting to work on it right away. We'll post those things online as well as um, – you know, more However you contact information. Great. So, but we do have time for another question if, if anyone has one. Okay, great. So, Jack, is there anything in closing that we didn't have enough time to talk about that you'd like to make further comments about? No, there's, there's, a, there's an awful lot, but I would, I, I would just say um, try not to be too overwhelmed. Um, you know that, that's that's a tough request. I know. Um, take a look at some of these things. Do what you can. Uh, continue to educate yourself because that'll that'll ease some of the the stress. And uh, you know, if you do proceed with action, to make sure that you're talking to people who know what they're talking about, because otherwise. It'll cost you more later and waste your time, and time is the most precious thing. So that's it. Well, thank you so much, Jack, and I'm sure everyone will join me in thanking you oh, for you. your time and for, you know, offering yourself as a resource because I think that it is terribly unfair for 
adult patients and parents of affected children to be dealing with so many issues where we are forced to be our own advocate and and we can't possibly have expertise in every area (laughs) to be able to know what medical supplies to access and what diagnoses to focus on and how to do special needs planning and how to use a G-tube and how to order supplements. And I mean, there's so many aspects of mitochondrial disease that are um, turned inward back onto the patient and family that it's really difficult. And so I think it's just reassuring when someone like yourself has that compassion and willingness to help. Yep, at any level. Anyone can call. So I appreciate Thank that. You. And um, I thank everyone for being here. Our, I, I'll say one more time that our topic next month at this point is with Dr. Pat O'Malley, who is um, a physician at Massachusetts General Hospital, and she's going to talk a little bit about hospice and palliative care and the misconceptions that those are just end-of-life uh, services, but that also can help folks with opportunities to really have some quality of life initiatives during uh, many years of a diagnosis with mitochondrial disease. I really like her, and I think you will, too. That will be in the first Friday of April. And then, as I mentioned earlier, there are online, I'm sorry, teleconference support groups that happen now every Friday. So the second Friday of the month, which is next Friday, is for newly diagnosed, both parents of children as well as patients. These are just informal opportunities to connect with other people who are going through the same thing and ask questions and share resources and vent and and so forth. The third Friday of the month is um, dedicated just for parents, and the fourth Friday of the month is dedicated just for adult patients, and spouses are welcome to participate in that as well. We have another new group that is an autism and mitochondrial disease um, support and task force, and that's happening on the second Tuesday. And all this sounds very overwhelming. There's no way I would expect you to remember all that. If you go to our website and you click on the area on the homepage that says MitoAction Events, it it says on Google Calendar, you'll get to a calendar that has all the events with the topics and the toll-free number and so forth. But anytime that you have questions, you can also email me directly, director at mitoaction.org. Did you say the number for these groups was the same as this number today? Is yes. The, is the yes. code the same as well? The same. It's always the same. This okay. is our number, and we use it for for all the groups. Until we start having multiple groups happening at the same time, this is our, <laughs> this is our line, and that's the code. So um, you can... Write it down and tape it on your fridge, and it's always the same. And the code is always the same as well. Excuse me. Could I just type in, um, I just had a question about the card that you mentioned. I've been online um, trying to look. Exactly what am I supposed to be looking under for, um, you mentioned a medical card in the beginning. So what I was mentioning is that you can access the clinician's guide online. Okay. And if you would like to request, we have some 5 by 7 postcards that are targeting physicians to help them be aware of this resource online. And if you'd like us to mail you a couple so that you can give those to your doctor to say, hey, here's a resource written by one of the leading metabolic mitochondrial disease experts in the U.S., then send us an email at info info at mitoaction.org, and we'll send you some of those cards for you to share with your physicians. Great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And to that degree, I'll say again that if there's anything else that's on our website that you'd like, such as a hard copy of one of the um, movies that we have online, some green ribbon um, lapel pins that say Mito, uh, brochures, cards for awareness for the clinician's guide, etc. Um, we're happy to mail that stuff to you, so you just need to let us know that you're interested by sending an email to info at mitoaction.org. Any other final questions before we say goodbye? 
Jack had mentioned about legal documents, and obviously it's, I'm sure it's always preferable to go to an attorney for those things, but I know that sometimes you can get um, or things, you know, that are a lot less expensive, like for the durable power of attorney or living well, those kinds of things. I was just wondering, you know, kind of what your opinion or advice might be about that. Jack, are you still on the line? So it looks like he's hung up, but um, was that Marcy asking? Ellen. Ellen. Okay, Ellen, why don't I email Jack about it? And he mentioned earlier he had a template. Why don't I, um, when I'm following up with him, why don't I ask him if he has a template that's a good starting point that okay, we great. could include in those resources? I think okay, that's a great fantastic. question. Mm -hmm, I think that's a great question. Thanks. Sure. Anything else? All right. Well, thank you guys so much, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. If I can help you, I'd be happy to try. My email address is director at mitoaction.org. And uh, in the meantime, I hope to have you all join us in some other groups this month and um, for next month as well. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.